0: Hey, I'm Debbie Manning. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. And happy Father's Day. I, uh, we love, love to celebrate our fathers, and at the same time, we hold together that this isn't always a celebratory day for people. While we celebrate those that have been like fathers, been mentors and coaches, have guided us along in our lives, there's also some pain for some of us whether it be a broken relationship or a father who's no longer with us. Maybe you're a father and you've lost a child. But what we want you to know is that we truly believe that we can hold those two things together, the celebration, the joy, and the heartache. And so we do that with you today. The other thing is happy, I don't know if you say it this way, but Juneteenth, happy Juneteenth. And we celebrate today as we remember Um, This moment of freedom that although the Emancipation Proclamation was signed away in 1863, it wasn't until June 19th of 1865 that it hit Galveston, Texas and finally those enslaved people were freed. And so now in this country, we have this marking moment where we actually get to pause and remember and tell the stories, and the stories are so important, the stories of those that fought for freedom, because we know that freedom's not free. But the stories, they remind us, they remind us of what's possible if we protect the sacredness of our common humanity and love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So... Here we are, and we are continuing on in Eric Minton's book, It's Not You, It's Everything. Why is kindergarten the new first grade? Matt started us off um, last week, and Eric got right into it at the very first paragraph of this chapter, so here we go. Patty, you can put that slide up. From our bathroom breaks, to our sleep schedules, to our emotional availability, millennials are growing up highly attuned to the needs of capital markets. We are encouraged to strategize and scheme to find places, times, and roles where we can be effectively put to work. Efficiency is our existential purpose, and we are a generation of finely-honed tools crafted from embryos to be lean, mean production machines. That's from Malcolm Harris, Kids These Days. I read that and I had this feeling of, okay, let's get her done because we are get her done kind of people. And efficiency, which can be a beautiful thing, can also become part of our identity, our purpose. And it reminded me of um, just this past Thursday. I was officiating a big funeral over at Christ Presbyterian Church. And it was beautiful. It was a little messy getting there. The three adult children lived throughout the country and, and the funeral coordinator over at CPC and myself and the three adult children, it took us a long time just to get a meeting on our Zoom, a, a Zoom meeting. And then we were on the call for two hours as we were just figuring out the ins and outs of this service. And then we spent about an hour of that two hours hearing stories of their father of Hal, this beautiful, humble, just, kind, faithful man A lot of tears, a lot of beautiful tears. Well, we finally got to the service on Thursday, and it was beautiful. It was a little messy. It started late because one of the daughters had um, trouble getting her mom there, but that was okay. We just wanted to be in the moment and honor Hal. They had this really cool moment where The daughter, Cherie, got up and she was telling stories, reflecting on her father's life. And she told the story about how her father would bring his guitar to her room, to her brother's room, to her other brother's room every night. And he would call out for requests. And the brothers would make their different requests every night. But every night, every night for years, Cherie's request was the same song. It was Annie's song. And what was so beautiful and personal and intimate and a little bit messy about this service that went really long is the brother surprised her and had musicians step up and sing in the middle of the service Annie's song. Not only honoring her father, but honoring her and the relationship they had. So we're here at this lovely, messy, beautiful, intimate, personable, personal, very inefficient service. And I went directly from there to another church to plan, help plan, my mother-in-law's service. She passed away in January, the Mannings are having a service in July. And I walked in and um, the priest walked in late because he too was coming from officiating a, a funeral and he sat down, there were no introductions. We went through the rules, what we could, who could talk, who couldn't talk, what we could sing, what we could say, what had to be sung. Um, and this is what was allowed. About two minutes in, I realized, oh, okay, and we're on their home turf. I always want to honor that. And so I realized, okay, let's, let's do this, and we'll do the best we can, and maybe we do some of these personal things on the side. But we walked out, and I was with a few in-laws and my husband, and I realized, wow, that was such an efficient planning service. But it was really sad. The priest never once said, I'm so sorry about your loss, the priest never once asked about my mother-in-law, what she was like, about her faith, about her life, her loves. Efficiency is not the full life, my friends. And so often I think that our culture speaks into that, right? We've got to be efficient. We've got places to go and people to see. We've got things to get done bigger, better, faster. Busier, we got to produce, we got to accomplish. Aren't those the thing that our culture tells us makes us successful? And by the way, as a side note, as I was reading this chapter and doing some studying, I was thinking, and wasn't technology supposed to make all of this more efficient and giving us more time? Wasn't technology supposed to save us, connect us, free us? I'm thinking that hasn't happened because of the culture that says you can do more, you can be more, Keep going. Now again, I want to say, we need efficient people, I need them in my life, and efficiency is a good thing. But Efficiency is not our purpose in life. It alone does not lead to the full life. But here we are, and I think we are a people that are often have this anxious pursuit of happiness at all costs. And because whether we know it or not, we're choosing anything and everything out of the fear of failure. We will choose even being a little bit miserable if life's a little hard, if it avoids failing. And the reality is we're all trying to live our lives, as Eric Mitten would say, in a time of market-driven scarcity, violence, and collective anxiety, which comes out of our fears of failure. Friends, I think underneath all this, if we peel it back, we're afraid. And that fear trickles out into others, that fear trickles out into our kids. Culture says do anything, be anything, invest everything or else. And winner-takes-all mentality. And add to that, that, that um, it's not okayness to sort of just be who you are. It's created this world with crumbling mental health and an increase in anxiety attacks. And here's the interesting thing that's more recent. Researchers are discovering that anxiety and depression in our, in our teenagers, it outpaces all other concerns by a pretty big margin. And that crosses all sorts of socioeconomic divides, um, ethnicity, so then imagine Adding to the already broken system, growing up in a world marked by institutional abandonment, by police bro- brutality, by uh, inequity in education, um, already being left behind just because you're a person of color. And our institutional responses to the pain in our kids are far more about relieving those symptoms. And getting them back on track, getting them back at school, getting them back to work as soon as possible. Because if not, they might fall behind. We better do that. And the sad thing about this is that these responses, they shift our focus from who our kids are to what they can do and how much they can eventually earn. I think it's a good moment in the message for what Matt says every week, and it's his Timberwolves mantra, who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention. Here's what Eric Mitten from his book has to say. The depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicidal ideation pouring out of our country's youngest citizens are not just pressing medical or mental health problems to be addressed. At a much deeper level, this experience is a collective pain to be empathized with and a warning to be heeded. The desperation many of us have become accustomed to drowning out with compulsive work, boxed wine, Instagram, and bottomless trips to Costco is slowly killing everyone. But it's coming for our kids first. All that fear. That uncertainty, it's coming out sideways, friends. And it sounds like someone's going to end up paying the price for it. I think we're afraid, and I think we got it wrong. We're missing the big picture. Here's what Glennon Doyle from Untamed says. We obsess over our children's snacks while they rehearse their own deaths in active shooter drills at school. We agonize over their college prep while the earth melts around them. I cannot imagine that there has ever been a more overparented and underprotected generation. I don't know about you guys, but I read that over and over and over again, and I I was blown away by the truth of that we are collectively missing the big picture of what's going on in our world. And this fear. The fear of what? The fear of failure. The fear of not being successful. In the world's definition of success, we know that, right? It's accomplishments, it's money, it's prosperity, it's status, it's popularity. There's something deep inside us at times that desires that. It must. Because in some way, and maybe it doesn't look so overt, it might be more nuanced, but I think all of us to some degree, I know me, has been chasing that. I've had periods of time in my life that I am chasing that. That perfect picture that the world tells us is the way to success. And we chase it, and we chase it, and in those moments when we actually grab it, somehow it's not all that fulfilling. or the fulfillment doesn't last that long In the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a story about King Solomon. And King Solomon, um, he gives the account of how he lived his life. And most of his life he spent chasing worldly success. He talked about, and I love this phrasing, how how unknowingly empty he was chasing the wind. Because King Solomon, I mean, he built kingdoms. He built homes. He spent his life finding looking for meaning and wealth, working hard, knowledge, 700 wives, 300 concubines. He was one of the most successful kings. And he had found that his success was purposeless because he was chasing the wind. And maybe there's just a little bit of something in that story that we can all relate to, chasing that wind, because the wind, it can't be caught, it can't be collected. It's not tangible. And although many of our possessions and accomplishments take on a tangible form in our life, they can't give us meaning. Because true success comes from something beyond all of us. Somewhere deep inside we know that. It comes beyond, it, it comes from somewhere else. It's this deep desire for a full life, for wholeness, for health, for connectedness. And that's a life that's rooted in God. The craving for something deeper, more meaningful, eternal. I don't know. Sometimes I think, I guess it's been my life experience, all that desire, all that knowing that it's about being rooted in God, somehow that comes like as an end point instead of a beginning point if I have time left at the end of the day and sometimes I just forget and I just keep carrying on with life thinking that I can do it all on my own. Our status quo, our business as usual so often becomes that treadmill that we don't know how to get off of or maybe we're just afraid to jump off of because what will it cost us if we jump off of it? But When we're on that treadmill I don't know, as you get older, you realize that you get tired. Your body starts to ache. You can sustain it for a while, but pretty soon, you can't do it anymore. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything anymore. It reminds me a little bit of my husband, Steve, has always been in sales. and one of the things, and I get it, I like get it intellectually, but every year I'm like, what? Like in sales, you have a quota. And then if you have a good year, like you work super, super hard, and you have a great year, guess what happens the next year? Like jump your quota way up here. And I'm like, wait a second. That's not fair. And then it's really hard to make the quota the next year. But that's the culture we live in. Bigger, better, faster, more. Work harder, put in more. Ours. We do that with our kids. We do that with our own lives. We want to give them every chance, every opportunity. Sign them up for the soccer camp. We did this. I'm reading this going, oh my gosh, I thought we were well balanced. I thought we got it. But no, guess what? Annie loves soccer. Let's make sure she gets into that soccer camp. Kate wants to try hockey. Let's do this. And we were busy and we were running and we were going here and there. And don't forget choir and church is really important. and, And we're here and there. And... Barely able to breathe, we were on the treadmill. We got it wrong. We got it wrong, and Jesus weeps. Luke nineteen forty one through 44, the week before Jesus dies. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you, and when your enemies build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. As Jesus comes near the city, he weeps. His tears are tears of love and compassion and heartbreak. And while it's about the city of Jerusalem, it's not really just about the city of Jerusalem. It's more about the condition, the system. It's about a people who are too ignorant to see the things that actually make for peace. It's about a people who are too blind to actually see God's presence amongst them. And the very next sentence, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. You know, I always thought this story was more about Jesus being angry, but I think we're missing part of it. Because the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, Jesus was a faithful Jew. He went to the temple all the time. He would have seen, right, the money changers and the animals all along. Like, why this time? Why this time did he turn those tables over, kick those animals out? Well, maybe Jesus went to the temple that day for one purpose, to throw out and overturn business as usual. Because I think there are times in our lives where those tables need to be overturned and the animals thrown out. Because I think it's so easy to fall into the status quo, the system as is, the treadmill of life. And maybe Jesus is just shaking it up and saying, pay attention, you are missing it. You are missing it. Because so often life can be on autopilot and we go through the motions and we show up, but you're not really there, right? We're already thinking about the next thing. Calendars are full. There's a box to check. We go, go, go until we fall into bed, and then guess what we do? We get up the next morning, and we start it all over again. These are symptoms. In the same way that the animals and the money changers in the temple, they're not the problem. They're symptoms of something deeper that's going on. And the problem is not so much in the temple as the condition of the people, the system that everyone's bought into. And the deeper issue, I think, what gives rise to this current status quo, this of pursuing success, pursuing accomplishment, I think the deeper issue is fear. We're fearful about what's happening in our life or the uncertainty of the future. And we want some kind of security, even predictability. So we keep on going and we keep doing the next thing, the bigger thing, the best thing. Because if we stop, if we get off, what happens? We gotta keep trying harder working better, investing everything. And I think if we do that, we're able to fool ourselves into some illusion, some illusion of security and success. Somehow, if we achieve A, B, then C, we'll have arrived. We're good. We've got it all. Our problems are solved. But no matter what, we end up being busy, worn out, Life turns into one task after another, one appointment after another, a never-ending list. And we truly have come to believe that we cannot afford to stop. Because what happens if I stop? But maybe the real truth is that we can't afford not to stop. At least to push the pause button, slow down for a little bit, because I think we're missing the point and we don't even realize it. And then sometimes I think we just simply forget. I think that's what happened in the temple. They didn't see themselves or one another as the true temple of God. It was all about the human built, the animals, the coins. They'd forgotten that God was far more interested in them than he was in the festivals, that God wanted to to be connected with them, not their offerings. And I guess underneath all that is that sometimes we just simply forget whose we are. So what are you chasing? Where are you in in the pursuit of the good life, the successful life? Have you been on a road were there you have been pursuing something that was the wrong dream and that was costing you a part of your life? Have you been there when you realize that the treadmill you're on was leaving you spiritually bankrupt? Have there been times in your life when you keep doing the next thing and the same thing over and over and nothing changes? That's not the full life. God calls us to. And I think one thing we can do is we can look at our relationships, our relationships with God and our family and each other here. I think we can take a look at our own sense of gratitude, wonder, mystery, connectedness to God. And the big question becomes what kind of values have we communicated? And what kind of world have we created? Because sometimes I think we look and don't see. We listen but don't hear. We speak and we don't say. And ultimately, we forget. We forget that we are that temple of God. And life can easily become a series of transactions. Relationships, intimacy is lost. Priorities get arranged, rearranged. And making a living replaces. living a life. Life becomes a marketplace rather than a place for meeting the holy in ourselves and one another. So maybe as we dive into this book together, and this is the first chapter, we can just pause. We can just slow down a little bit and take a look at our own lives. And so often, you know, when we have these conversations about our life and our boundaries, we say, you know, what do we need to say no to? But I'm going to ask you, are you saying yes to some things? Are you saying yes to life and well-being? Are you saying yes to rest and renewal and refreshment? Are you saying yes to growth and transformation, to calling and gifts, to value and the presence of others in our lives? Are you saying yes to the needs and passions and desires that you have? Are you saying yes in gratitude for those in your life? (coughs) Excuse me. Yes to a deeper relationship. Yes to shared dreams and a future together. Yes to the spirit within us. I think Matt and I often say up here, don't have all the answers. I keep learning as I go along. But What I do fully believe is that God calls us to a really full life. And it's a life about love, and it's a life about relationship, and it's a life about goodness and generosity. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's the full life. I'm going to share a quick story before I end with a blessing. I wasn't going to share it. But I was thinking about uh, Friday night. I was at a a friend's home for some dinner. And I was thinking about what a whole, there's about eight of us there, and what a holy time that was. It wasn't very efficient, it wasn't a get or done kind of night, it was a bee kind of night. Shared food, shared conversation, and this holy moment of, of getting to hear someone's story. That's the full life. It's when we engage in life, we love one another, we link arms, and we figure this all out together. I'm going to end with this blessing, and as soon as I'm done with the blessing, Katie's going to come up for our words of institution. And Linny, Kate Bowler, whoop, whoop. you got to love Kate. Lynn got to meet Kate Bowler, talk with her at the McAllister graduation, which was so awesome. There's so many Kate Bowler fans now. Perfect for this chapter, what we were talking about. A blessing for slowing down. Feel free to shut your eyes, take it in. Blessed are we who thought we were self-made by the doing, by the accolades, by the accomplishments, and by the gold stars. We measured our worth by how, how tired we were every morning, how many times we answered, how are you, with busy. We thought, this is the good life. But then we grew tired. And lonely. We left the strain on our relationships and our, we felt the strain on our relationships and our spiritual lives, and we became a bit miserable to be around. So blessed are we who stop. (coughs) Excuse me, I don't have COVID. (coughs) I do have a tickle (coughs) cough. Blessed are we who stop. Okay, maybe not stop entirely who are we kidding, but who slow down. We who discover rest and new life and renewal when we step off the treadmill or at least turn it down. We who remember that the world keeps spinning without us and thank God for that. We who remember that we are loved, loved, loved. Not for what we do, but for who we are.
1: Debbie, something you said that struck me was the don't miss it. And I think of being a parent of two young kids and am I trying to be the high achieving person and am I missing it, what's happening right in front of me? Am I trying to make my kids be these perfect children and am I missing who they are already becoming? And I think of being a a hamster on a wheel and how, that I know that's not what Christ has called me to. That Christ has called me to see the sacredness. That's something you said at the very beginning, the sacredness in humanity. And I don't think sacredness comes when we're exhausted at the end of the day because we've worn ourselves out. I think we appreciate the sacredness in the midst of the mess. When, or maybe the mess is the sacredness. Maybe that's what it is. Uh, And it makes me think of just the day in, day out things, uh, the sacredness that those hold things like bread and the cup. And that's what we do now, we gather together to remember. The night before Jesus died, he was with his friends, they shared a meal. Took the bread, and he thanked God for it, and then he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Anytime you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he thanked God for it. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood poured out for you in the midst of your messiness, in the midst of slowing down. And whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. So that's what we do now is you eat your cracker and drink your juice, we're remembering. And I had a friend tell me once, um, He's a pastor and he said, not only when we do this, do we remember Christ, but we remember ourselves as a body. That part of the reason we do this is to remember who we are, who we are individually, but who we are as a a unit, to put ourselves back together. And maybe that's someone reminding you, you should probably slow down because there's holiness happening around you right now. So let's pray the prayer that our savior taught us when he said, our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever amen
0: um if you haven't gotten the book you guys we have more if you want to sign up for a group sign up because I'll have all groups assigned by the end of this week um it's been a really great book so far so I encourage you and I encourage you book club it's so much fun um and we really encourage sign up for the pride weekend we need we need you um I was thinking a lot during this message over the last few days. I was thinking and studying, and so much of our conversation lately has been, is like, why does this matter? Why does gathering on Sunday matter? I was thinking that I think it's important to matter, because sometimes we need to remember. We need to remember that we are a people rooted in God called to live out that love so hold your hands out for our benediction no matter who you are or what you've done no matter who you love or what you've lost no matter where you've been or the places you've stayed you always have a place at the table because you are a beloved child of God and beloved you belong All right, everyone, go in peace. Enjoy this warm weather.